In these podcasts, we uncover one chapter after another from the life of the Prophet ﷺ in an attempt to learn about him, love him, and better ourselves through his example. Immersion, mentorship, companionship, and tarbiyah. These are just a few of the things we offer alongside knowledge of the prophetic biography at the Sirah Intensive. Two weeks dedicated to the study of the life of the Prophet ﷺ and his noble characteristics. So this winter, inshallah, join me in Dallas, Texas, alongside your classmates from all over the world to learn the story of the life of the best of humanity, the mercy to mankind, the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ. Go to sirahintensive.com to register or for more info. Bismillahi walhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillahi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Uh, inshallah continuing with our study of the life of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, al-Nabawiyya, the prophetic biography. In the last few sessions we have been talking about the battle of Tabuk. Uh, we talked about in a number of sessions the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, what was the impetus to the campaign and the expedition of Tabuk, the Prophet wasallam and the Muslims, uh, how they exactly prepared for uh, the expedition of Tabuk, um, their journey to Tabuk, and then we talked about their arrival and exactly what transpired at the place of Tabuk. And then we talked about ultimately the consequence and the outcome of the entire expedition of Tabuk and what exactly happened there. And when we left off last, we were talking about the journey back home, the journey back to the city of Medina. And in fact, we talked about the Prophet wasallam's arrival back to Medina. And we talked about how the Prophet was so excited to be back home in Medina. And the fact that the only journey the Prophet would take after this point going forward would be for Hajjatul Wida, for the farewell pilgrimage. So there was almost like a sense of relief that the Prophet felt at his arrival back into the city of Medina because he was back home. The Prophet said, this is our beautiful home of Medina. So what we're going to talk about today is one of the very well-known stories that is associated with this particular event, the expedition to Tabuk, it's something that the Qur'an references as well. We're going to be going through the passages of the Qur'an that are relevant to the entire situation of Tabuk in the next session, inshallah, as a conclusion to it. Because you're able to, once you've studied each event in detail, and then you go back and you go through the passages of the Qur'an, you're able to kind of see how the Qur'anic narrative is put together, and what the Qur'an emphasizes, and how the Qur'an basically not only tells the story, but the lessons that it teaches us subsequently. So what we're going to talk about today is something that is is mentioned within the Qur'an itself, and that is the story that is famously known as the story of Ka'b bin Malik. Now it is not only the story of Ka'b bin Malik, rather what we're going to talk about today is the story of about 13 individuals. 13 individuals. But it is famously known as the story of Ka'b bin Malik because it is one of the lengthiest narrations that is found in the Sahih of Imam Bukhari. It's one of the lengthiest ahadith, authentic narrations that you will find in the books of hadith. And it is narrated in the first person by Ka'b bin Malik. That's how it became very well known and documented as the story of Ka'b bin Malik. <clears throat> so what I'm going to be going through today is the narration of Bukhari, Imam Bukhari's narration about this hadith of Ka'b, what's famously known as the narration of Ka'b, radiallahu ta'ala anhu. A little bit of quick background, and Ka'b actually will make reference to some of his own background in this, but real quickly, just so that we know who we're talking about, Ka'b bin Malik radiallahu ta'ala anhu was an Ansari. He was a Medinan Muslim. He was originally from the city of Medina. He was a younger man. At this particular point in time, he was probably maybe in his late 20s, at the most 30 years old. When he accepted Islam, he was one of the Muslims who came and gave the oath of allegiance to the Prophet ﷺ before the Prophet ﷺ migrated to Medina in the area of Mina during the season of Hajj. And in fact, some of the narrations mentioned that he was the very first one to give the oath of allegiance to the Prophet ﷺ. He was also a very, very skilled and talented poet. He was a sha'ir, he was a very skilled and talented poet. And in fact, um, one of his very beautiful stories is mentioned that 
when he came to Mecca that particular year at the season of Hajj, um, and they came there, they were Muslim, they had converted because of the da'wah and the preaching of uh, Musa bin Umayr radiallahu ta'ala anhu. And they were coming to give the oath of allegiance to the Prophet ﷺ and also present their proposal. Their proposal was that we are asking you to come to the city of Medina and make that your home and your base of operations. And that will serve as a safe place, a refuge, a sanctuary for all the Muslims, anyone who believes. So when they arrived there, they were briefed by Musa bin Umayr anhu that look, Makkah is not like anything like Medina. Medina was very... You know, for the most part, it was very relaxed. Um, everybody was very comfortable with one another. There was a Jewish community. There were still Arabs who were still holding on to the old ways of shirk. There was a huge number, hundreds of Muslims now who had accepted Islam. But nobody really, had, up until this point, had a real problem with one another. And everybody could practice what they practiced freely and openly. But they, he briefed them saying, look, Makkah is not like that at all. Right, Makkah is very, very tense. Makkah is on the edge of just, you know, uh, combusting. So you have to be very careful. So when we go there, you got to keep a low profile. You got to mind your own business. You can't go around talking about Islam, and the Prophet ﷺ can't go looking for him. We have a set meeting and a schedule with him, um, an appointment with him that will occur in the middle of the night on the last night that we are in Mina, just so that. <clears throat> We're able to have that particular meeting and then we're able to move on without causing any problem. So the, he had already briefed them. Ka'b bin Malik was attached. He was a young man at this time, maybe in his late teens or 20 years old at the most. And he was attached as kind of a personal assistant to look after and to take care of one of the elders of the Ansar, whose name was Barra bin Ma'roor. Barra bin Ma'roor. And it's a very touching story even that he has. But nevertheless, to kind of um, stay on topic as much as we can. When they arrive there, Barra bin Ma'roor says, you know, I understand, you know, uncles sometimes they kind of operate with their own set of rules. So he says, I know that we were told not to go meet the Prophet ﷺ, but I have it in. I know his uncle Abbas from back in the day. We've done business together. So he goes and he meets with Abbas. And... Ka'ab bin Malik is along with him. And he says to Abbas, he goes, is it possible for me to meet your nephew? Abbas radiallahu ta'ala anhu, who is not Muslim at this particular point, he understood. He recognized the fact that, okay, looks like he's Muslim. So he says, yeah, sure, I can introduce you to him. And he called the Prophet ﷺ. And when the Prophet ﷺ came, and they sat down, Abbas started to introduce them. And he said that, you know, to the Prophet ﷺ, سَيِّدُ قَوْمِهِ وَأَكْبَرُهُمْ وَشَرِيفُهُمْ وَكَبِيرُهُمْ وَكَذَا 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 Right? Um, that this is a leader of his people, and he is an elder of his people, and he is a nobleman of his people, and etc., etc., etc. And then he says, وَهَذَا كَعْبُ And this is Ka'ab. Like the introduction was, this is so and such and such and such and such and such, and this is Ka'ab. And Ka'ab bin Malik says, that was my first introduction to the Prophet ﷺ. And I was so eager to meet the Prophet ﷺ that I, I just felt really disappointed. He actually says, I felt really small. And the Prophet ﷺ was just so sensitive to other people. He was so empathetic. He says, the Prophet ﷺ kind of felt my embarrassment. And the Prophet ﷺ said, Ashair, wait a second, aren't you the poet? I've heard a lot about you. And he said that لا أنسى قول رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم. I'll never forget those words of the Prophet ﷺ to me. It meant so much to me. So this is Kaab, and that's why he says that finally on that night when we congregated and we were called forth to give the oath of allegiance, he said I rushed forward and I put my hand in the hand of the Prophet ﷺ to accept Islam. And so this is who Kaab bin Malik is. He's a young man. He is a devoted companion of the Prophet ﷺ. He was a very talented man. Particularly at that time, poets were people who really crafted and controlled, you know, and, and impacted and affected the culture at that time. I, I believe the term these days is influencers, right? People who have influence. So he was an influencer of his time. That's who poets were. So he's a very talented young man. And he was also a very devoted young man. And so he actually says that I never لم أتخلف عن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم في غزوة غزاها إلا في غزوة تبوك. 
He says, I never stayed behind from any of the expeditions that the Prophet ﷺ went on. None of the battles the Prophet ﷺ participated in, except for the Battle of Tabuk, except for the expedition of Tabuk. He says, and also the Battle of Badr. I did not. I was not there for the Battle of Badr. But he explains why. Nobody who missed on the, out on the Battle of Badr was reprimanded for it. He says that the Prophet did not originally leave Mecca with the intent of the battle. They were going to intercept the caravan of Abu Sufyan, and then lo and behold, it ended up becoming, you know, the battle that it became. So for that reason, there was no um, sin, there was no uh, reprehension upon anyone who missed out on the Battle of Badr. So I was not there for Badr, but after that, I had participated in every single campaign, every single expedition. I never left the side of the Prophet ﷺ, except for Tabuk. So he tells the story exactly what happened. So he says that he even goes on to say, وَلَقَدْ شَهِدْتُ مَعَ رَسُولَهِ صَلَى اللَّهِ عَلَيْهِمْ لَيْلَةَ الْعَقَبَةَ He says, حِينَ تَوَاثَقْنَا عَلَى الْإِسْلَامِ He says, I participated on that night when we gave the oath of allegiance to the Prophet وَمَا أُحِبُّ أَنَّ لِي بِهَا مَشْهَدَ بَدْرٍ وَإِن كَانَتْ بَدْرٌ أَذْكَرَ فِي النَّاسِ مِنْهَا he says, even though Badr was a more famous incident, I would not have traded my place on that night in Mina when we gave the oath of allegiance to the Prophet Even if I could trade that to have been at Badr, I would not trade it. Badr was more well-known, was more famous because it was a battle, it was more glorious. But he says that night that we gave the oath of allegiance to the Prophet ﷺ at the sacred place of Mina was a very special night. And I was there and I was the first one to give the oath of allegiance to the Prophet ﷺ. Nevertheless, he goes on to say, he says, He says that I had never been more physically able nor had I been more financially capable than I was at the time of Tabuk, when I actually stayed back. And he goes on to explain that, he says he also swears, he says, Wallahi, he says, similarly, I swear by Allah, I had never owned two transportations in my life before that moment. That was the first time in my life that I owned not one, but two camels. I owned two modes of transportation. And he says that there had never been a battle before in which the Prophet ﷺ mandated and necessitated that each and every single person who was capable and able, financially capable and physically able, that they needed to go. Every male who was financially capable and physically able had to go. He said that was the first time the Prophet ﷺ ever demanded that. And he says that this was in the dead heat of summer. It was one of the most brutal summers that we had had. غزاها رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم في حر شديد واستقبل سفرا بعيدا ومفازا وعدوا كثيرا. He says that it was a very distant, long journey. We were going to be passing through the middle of nowhere, and we were going to reportedly face a very large, abundant enemy. So he says the Muslims all gathered together and really pitched in and came with their enthusiasm. And they set out. And he says the Muslims were also so many. We had never seen such a large number of Muslims before. There were 30,000 Sahaba who went for the Battle of Tabuk, as we talked about previously. He says that there were so many that, He says there were so many that they were not even able to record all the names of the companions. Usually whenever they would set out for battle, they would have a roster. They would have a roster of everyone who was going just so they could keep track of everyone. But he said there were so many that they couldn't even keep a roster. That's how many, there were 30,000. But the enemy that they were going to meet was reportedly hundreds, some said 200, some said 300,000 soldiers were coming from Rome. So he says it was, very, it was a huge moment. And he said that nobody stayed back out of fear that... If somebody was capable and able and they were a believer and they stayed back, they were afraid, they were fearful that God would reveal something about them reprimanding them. So nobody stayed back. And not only that, but he also says the Prophet ﷺ, He says that the Prophet ﷺ set out on this particular expedition when the fruits were ripe 
and the trees were ready to be picked and plucked. And he says the Prophet and the Muslims all prepared. And he says that I intended to go. I had every intention to go. There's a very fascinating point. I'm going to kind of interject since it's such a long narration. I'll interject certain ideas and points that we can learn from inshallah. That he says, I intend, فَتَفِقْتُ أَغْدُ لِكَيْ يَتَّجَهَزْ مَعَهُمْ He says, I intended to go. I had every intention to go. But here's the thing. We do know that intention is very, very important. Intent is essential. إِنَّمَ لَعْمَلُوا بِالنِّيَاتِ Intent is essential. Intentionality is a very foundational and fundamental and central component of our spirituality and our deen and religion. However, it is not the entirety of it. Right? Intention, a good intention will not excuse a bad action. Right? A good intention will not excuse inaction. I can want to pray Isha. But if I don't actually get up and make wudu and come and stand and say Allahu Akbar, it's all for naught. Now if I go to make wudu and I don't find water, and I'm searching around looking for water, you know, or something happens, or this happens, or that happens, or, you know, some, some incident occurs that prevents me, obstructs me from praying, that's a different story. That's a different story. Now the intention is important. But if I'm just laying there wide awake, I'm just sitting there wide awake, and I'm like, yeah, Sisha, I want to pray Isha. And I don't pray Isha. Then there's nothing that excuses that, and that intentionality is really meaningless. So it must be followed up and it must be supplemented by good action and proper action. So he says, He says, So I went home to prepare, but then I did not prepare. See, that's the, that's the point. I didn't prepare, I was not motivated. You have to be motivated, you have to be driven, you have to inspire yourself. You sometimes have to kind of drag yourself, if need be. But you got to follow that effort. you got to follow it up with some effort. And that's the second thing. He says, I kept telling myself, ah, I can get ready. No big deal. Sometimes that delusion, that sense of overconfidence settles in. Ah, I'll take care of it, it's no big deal. But the Prophet ﷺ and the Qur'an in fact teaches us that when it comes to doing the right thing, when it comes to doing good things, you have to be extra motivated and you cannot put it off. You cannot procrastinate. There must be that motivation, that drive that has to be there. So he says that, you know, people kept preparing and getting ready and I just kept kind of putting it off, like I'll get ready, I'll get ready, I'll get ready, until the morning came and the Prophet and the Muslims were leaving and I had not prepared yet. So I told myself at that time, again, here comes that overconfidence, and this is something the Quran speaks about. Right? That sometimes you put something off, you procrastinate. And that's also a trap and a trick of the nafs and of shaitan. Where you procrastinate and things get put off. So he said that I then told myself, ah, I can always prepare and leave a day or two later. Because 30,000 people when they travel, they're going to be traveling slower. If I leave by myself, I'll easily catch up with them. And they're going so far away, I'll have more than enough time to catch up. So he says, I kept telling that to myself, But I go home and I wouldn't do anything about it. I'd wake up the next day, go out again, and be like, okay, today I'll get ready and I'll prepare and I'll leave. And again, I wouldn't make the proper preparations. I didn't take it seriously enough. And the day would go by and I had not prepared. I didn't do anything about it. So he says that I kept on doing that until they reached their destination. At that time, he says, then when, I, when we got the news that they've reached the place of Tabuk, then I said to myself, now for sure I'm going to get ready and leave and go join them there. Because apparently the Prophet was going to be staying there for some time. And he did, as we know, stay there for about 20 days. So he says, I told myself I'll get ready and I'll go. And he says, I wish I would have. I wish I would have. But I did not. It just wasn't meant to be. So finally, 
he then says that فَكُنْتُ إِذَا خَرَجْتُ فِي النَّاسِ بَعْدَ خُرُوجِ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهِ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ فَتُفْتُ فِيهِمْ أَحْزَنَنِي أَنِّي لَا أَرَى إِلَى رَجُلًا مَفْمُوسًا عَلَيْهِ النِّفَاقُ أَوْ رَجُلًا مِمَّنْ عَذَرَ اللَّهُ عَذَرَ اللَّهُ مِنَ الدُّعَفَاءِ وَلَمْ يَذْكُرْنِي رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهِ عَلَيْهِ حَتَّى بَلَغَ تَبُوكَ فَقَالَ وَهُوَ جَالِسٌ فِي الْقَوْمِ بِتَبُوكَ مَا فَعَلَ كَعْبٌ So he says that when I after the Prophet left one day I went around and I walked around Medina because I got a little curious and the only people that I saw the only men that I saw that were still there were one of two types either somebody who was very clearly known as a hypocrite or number two, I saw very elderly or ill people who were excused from going because they were not physically able. And he said that that really, really pained me. The situation, the position I had put myself in. And he said, I also heard that the Prophet ﷺ did not mention me until he reached Tabuk. When he reached Tabuk, the Prophet ﷺ said, where's Kaab? I don't see Kaab. So a man from Banu Salima, which was the tribe of Kaab, he says that one man, he said, حَبَسَهُ بُرْدَاهُ وَنَذْرُهُ فِي He says that his comfort and his luxury has kept him home. And he has become enamored with the things of this world. And basically alluded to the fact that maybe my Islam wasn't as like sound or strong or reliable. And he says, Mu'adh bin Jabal radiallahu ta'ala anhu, who was also from Banu Salama, he was also like, you know, one of my tribe's people, he said, He says, It is incorrect what you say. Wallahi ya Rasulullah, ma alimna alayhi illa khayran. We've always known Ka'ab to be a good person. He's a righteous man. That's not true. Fasakata Rasulullah. The Prophet remained quiet. Which was the Prophet's way of saying, we'll see. To be determined. He says that I then got the news. That the Prophet ﷺ and the Muslims were coming back home. He says, I was overcome with grief at that moment. What have I done? And he said, I started to think about all the excuses and all the lies and all the ways I could talk myself out of the situation. He was a poet, talented man, man of words. So he says, I can talk my way out of any situation. So I started to think about that. And he said that I thought to myself that he said eventually when I thought more on it and the news came that the Prophet ﷺ had arrived outside of Medina and he was going to be coming into town the next day, he says, Zah anni al-Batil. All these evil bad thoughts about coming up with some story, spinning some tale, that just left me. And he says something very powerful. He says that I realized that a lie will never save me, will never help me in my predicaments. So I made up my mind that I was going to be truthful with him. When the Prophet ﷺ arrived back in Medina in the morning, and whenever the Prophet ﷺ arrived back in Medina, his habit was he would first go to the masjid, he would pray two rak'ahs there, he would pray two rak'ahs in the masjid, then he would sit with the people and just gather the reports of what had transpired, what had happened, and so on and so forth. So he said the hypocrites who had stayed back, they started coming and making excuses. And, the, and he says there were about 80 some odd of these individuals, of these hypocrites. And they all came and they made their excuses and the Prophet ﷺ accepted their excuses. He would just say, okay, 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 I understand, I understand, I understand. That didn't necessarily validate, be like, oh yeah, no, that's... No, but he just said, okay, okay, I hear you, I understand, okay. And then he says, وَبَايَعَهُمْ وَاسْتَغْفَرَ لَهُمْ And then after they would make their excuses, they would say, O Messenger of Allah, we want to prove to you that we're loyal. Allow us to give you the oath of allegiance again. The Prophet would say, okay. He would let them carry on with their charade. They would give their oath of allegiance. And then he would say, please make dua for us. And the Prophet would make dua. May Allah forgive you. You know, he would just do his part. And وَوَكَّلَ سَرَائِرَهُمْ إِلَى اللَّهِ And the Prophet ultimately said, Allah knows best. And Allah will deal with their internal realities. And here's another very fascinating point that the Prophet ﷺ taught us, and this is a very important lesson. We've talked about this numerous times before, that a principle of our deen and our religion that we learn from the Prophet ﷺ is, نَحْنُ نَحْكُمْ بِالظَّوَاهِرْ وَاللَّهُ يَتَوَلَّ السَّرَائِرْ 
We deal with the apparent reality of things and we leave the internal, we deal with the apparent um, conditions of things and we leave the internal reality of things to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We can only judge, we can only deal with the external appearance, circumstances, conditions of things. But somebody's like, oh, but that's, that, I think that's what he was really trying to get at. I don't know that. And we leave that to Allah. And a lot of times people get worried about that. Well, then how do you know someone's not lying and they're not being sneaky and they're not doing this? We have to fundamentally understand our belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has to be a part of the equation at some point. Tawakkul. Putting your faith and your trust and your reliance upon Allah is a very fundamental concept. And we have to remember that. And so we can't get caught up in this game of like, I know that this guy is... So when somebody comes to you and they apologize and someone's like, you know, he really didn't mean it. I, it's not my job. I can't worry about whether he meant it or not. Well, what if he apologizes to you just to get your guard down and then he's going to come at you again? Then so be it. I mean, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is, is there. We put our faith and our trust in Allah. Otherwise, if you don't have any faith and trust in Allah, we, we're trying to figure out what everything is and what everything isn't, and we're going to solve everything, and we're going to do everything, then what's the point of the faith in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Where does the faith come into the uh, equation? Is the hereafter a part of, our con, you know, part of our thought process or not? The ultimate justice in the hereafter, is that part of our thought process or not? Right? So this is what's talked about here. So... Nevertheless, he says, when I came to the Prophet alayhi, I said salam to the Prophet I stood there near him, he was sitting, and I said, Salaamu alaykum ya Rasulullah. Tabassama tabassumal mughdab. The Prophet smiled at me, but he kind of smiled like disapprovingly at me. You know, you just kind of smile and you shake your head at someone like you, trouble. Here comes trouble. Right? So he said, the Prophet gave me that look and he said, Ta'al, he said, come here. Come here. You? And he said, I went and I sat down in front of the Prophet ﷺ and the Prophet ﷺ said, Ma khallafaka? Why did you stay back? What kept you home? And he says that the Prophet ﷺ followed up and he says, Alam takun qad Didn't you have transportation? I said, of course I did. And he said that, I then said to the Prophet ﷺ, and this is very profound what he says, Wallahi, I'll share the words exactly verbatim. Inni wallahi lo jalasu inda ghaydika min ahli dunya la raaitu ansa akhruju min sakhatihi bi udrin. Wa laqad u'atitu jadalan. He says that if I was sitting with anyone else of worldly authority, if I was sitting with anyone else of worldly authority, a governor, a mayor, a police officer, somebody like that. He said that and I felt like I could you know, make an excuse and talk myself out of that situation, I would have. And I've been given a remarkable ability to talk my way around people. I can talk circles around people. But I know for a fact, that if I tell you a lie today that appeases you right now in the moment, I know that eventually God will tell you the truth and the reality of things and then you'll be upset with me. And if I tell you the truth that I was just lazy and I was inattentive and I was not focused and I let you know, the opportunity slip by, if I'm honest and truthful with you, that I am to blame solely me and my inability to act in the moment, you will be upset with me right now. But I hope for the forgiveness from God. And when God forgives me, then you will also be okay with me. He says, I swear to God, I have no valid excuse. I have no valid excuse. Wallahi ma kuntu qattu aqwa wa la aysara minni hina takhallaftu anka. He says, I've never been in a better, more capable and more able than I was when I stayed back. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he said, amma hadha faqad sadaq. He said, this one, he's spoken the truth. All those other dudes that lined up, everybody had some situation or another, right? Everybody else whose dog ate their homework, right? Those, those bunch of liars. This guy, he speaks the truth. 
فَقُمْ حَتَّى يَقْضِيَ اللَّهُ فِيكَ He says, now go, and Allah will decide your fate. So he says that, I left, and a group of Banu Salima, my tribes people came after me, and they said that, you know, you've never done anything wrong ever before. مَا أَذْنَبْتَ ذَنْبًا قَبْلَ هَذَا You've never done anything wrong ever before. And he says that, you couldn't make a simple excuse. All those people lined up and made excuses. You could have just made an excuse and asked the Prophet ﷺ to pray for your forgiveness eventually and made tawbah and repentance eventually and it would, have, it would have eventually worked itself out. But you've had a clean record up to this particular point. It's a first offense. It's okay. But he says that they kept on pushing me, they kept on pushing me, they kept on pushing me. Mazalu. He says to the point where I actually considered for a moment that maybe I should go back and tell the Prophet and disregard everything I said. I did have a valid excuse. I was just too embarrassed to present it to you. But then I said, But he says, I changed the topic and I said, Is there anyone else in my situation who just came and just kind of laid it out in front of the Prophet and put all their cards on the table, said I was completely capable and able of going. I just was lazy and I just you know, was neglectful. I am to blame. Was there anybody else? And they said, yeah, there's two other guys, Rajulani, um, who said a similar thing to the Prophet ﷺ. He said, I asked who they were, and I was told that they were Murara, Murara ibn al-Rabiya al-Umar al-Amri, wa Hilal ibn Umayya al-Waqifi. Murara and Hilal. Ka'ab was a younger man, maybe in his late 20s. Murara was more of a middle-aged man, probably around 40. And Hilal was a more elderly gentleman, probably in his 50s, approaching 60. And he says not only that, but he goes on to say, He says they were two very righteous companions of the Prophet ﷺ, and they had participated in the Battle of Badr. They were Badris. And the Ashabu Badr, we talked about it back when we studied Badr, the Prophet ﷺ asked Jibreel ﷺ that what is the status of the angels amongst all the angels who participate in Badr? What is their status amongst all the other angels? And Jibreel ﷺ said that they are considered in higher esteem than all the other angels. And the Prophet ﷺ said the same with us. The Sahaba who participate in Badr are held in higher esteem. So these were Badri Sahaba and he said they were role models in the community. So eventually the Prophet ﷺ issued the verdict as it came down from God. And that was that nobody was to speak to us and that we were basically to observe silence and kind of isolation from the community for a duration of 50 days. For a duration of 50 days. Um, and so that was our fate ultimately. He says that the other two, Hilal and Murara, they fastakana, they decided to stay home and not come out of their homes. And they stayed in their homes making tawbah, crying, making dua and praying. He says, for me, as, I, as far as I was concerned, He says, I was younger than the other two of them, so I was a little bit more kind of anxious, like I couldn't just be at home. And number two, he says, I was a little bit more kind of brash. He was a poet. So he says, I was a little bit more brash. I was a little bit more outgoing. So he said, I said, I'm not going to stay home. So he said, I used to go out and about and I would go to the prayer. I would go and pray in the masjid, just like I did normally. And I would walk around in the marketplaces. Nobody would talk to me. And he says, every single time I came to the masjid, I would say salam to the Prophet ﷺ, and then I would watch his mouth very carefully and I would see him move his lips in responding to the salam. And that let me know that, okay, I'm just observing my time, but I'm, I'm still, you know, good. And he says not only that, he says, فَإِذَا أَقْبَلْتُ عَلَىٰ صَلَاتِي أَقْبَلَ إِلَيَّ وَإِذَا الْتَفَلْتُ نَحْوَهُ أَعْرَضَ عَنِّي He says when I would start praying or reading or making dua or doing something like that, the Prophet ﷺ would look over at me and just check on me. He would be looking at me. And he said when I would look back at him, then he would look away. So he said I used to play this game with the Prophet ﷺ, make sure that I, you know, he still cared about me. He was still looking at me. And he said until finally it got to a point where about halfway through, about a month into it, it just became unbearable. He says, my cousin, his name was Abu Qatada. 
I climbed up, Abu Qatada was sitting on the roof of his home, I climbed up the wall, and I saw Abu Qatada sitting up on his roof, and he said, I, I, I make God your witness. Anshuduka billahi, I ask you for the sake of Allah. Don't you know, Don't you know that I love God and His Messenger? He says, then he stayed quiet. And I asked him again, I said, I ask you in the name of God, don't I love Allah and His Messenger? Am I not a sincere Muslim? And he stayed quiet again. Then I asked him a third time, and he said, Allah and His Messenger know best. Like, what do you want me to say? And he says that I started to cry. I broke down into tears. And I came down from the wall and I started to kind of walk around in the marketplace just kind of feeling sorry for myself. While I was walking around, a messenger arrived from out of town and he was asking for me. So someone pointed me out. That's Gab. So he came to me and he delivered a letter to me. He was delivering a letter from the king of Ghassan, Malik Ghassan. The king of Ghassan, basically, Ghassan, this tribe, these were Arab Christians. These, they were from the Arab, but they were Christian. They were, they were basically an extension of the Roman Empire. And they were loyal to the Roman Empire at that time. So the king of Ghassan had sent me a letter because, again, you know, you know Ka'ab bin Malik was a poet and an influencer, a notable companion. So he had sent a letter, and he said, in it he wrote, إِنَّهُ قَدْ بَلَغَنِي we have learned that your friend, your leader, has abandoned you. He's cast you out. And وَلَمْ يَجْعَلْكَ اللَّهُ بِدَارِ هَوَانٍ وَلَا مَضِيعًا And he says, He says that you do not need to suffer that indignity and that misery. Come and join us. We'll treat you well. We'll take care of you. And when I read this, I said, هذا أيضا من البلاء. This is another part of the test and the misery of my situation. I wasn't relieved. Haha, you see? People want me. I wasn't relieved by that idea. I was, I was even further insulted by this notion. Um, and he says that I found, in another narration he actually says, I was insulted by the fact that even the enemies of Islam see you as an opportunity. How weak must I be in my faith that they think they can win me over? They think I would turn my back on Allah and His Messenger. So he says, I was, I was devastated. And so he said, I, I saw that there was, a, there was a, a, an oven, you know, where they make bread or something like that. There was an oven nearby, and I took the letter and I threw it in there. He says, when 40 days of the 50 had passed, a messenger came from the Prophet ﷺ and he basically said that even your wife is now told to basically observe some separation for you, from you for the remaining 10 days. And he says that I told my wife that why don't you go stay with your family and respect you know, the terms that the Prophet ﷺ has set down. He says, in fact, I asked the messenger that does Prophet ﷺ want us to divorce? Is that what that means? And he said, no, of course not. Right? That's not a part of Islam, breaking up families, but this is more for you to observe your isolation and to really think about what you've done. He says, Hilal was an elderly man, so his wife went to the Prophet ﷺ and said, Hilal's an elderly man, we're poor, simple folk, we don't have any type of servants or anything like that, there's nobody to really look after him and take care of him and things like that, so can I stay just to look after him? The Prophet ﷺ said, that's fine. But of course, you know, try to refrain from intimacy and things like that. And she said, of course, that's the furthest thing from his mind. All he does is pray and cry and pray and cry ever since this ordeal has begun. And he says, Kaab says, my wife came to me and said, look, the Prophet let Hilal's wife stay. Why don't you ask if I can stay as well? And he said, no, Hilal's an old elderly man. I'm a young man. I, I, would, I, would, be, I would be embarrassed to even ask. Let me do my time. I made a mistake. Let me pay the penance for my mistake. So he says that I observed those last 10 days. He said by the end of the, these last 10 days, of 50 days, it had really taken its toll. And I had found it more and more difficult to even go outside and go to the masjid and things like that. He said one day I prayed Fajr on the roof of my house. And I was sitting up there. 
And while I was up there, that day at Fajr, the Prophet ﷺ recited the verses, Allahu al mu'minina. So Allah the Prophet ﷺ recited the verses that basically talked about the fact that God had accepted our repentance and God had accepted our penance and He had forgiven us. And he said, somebody came while I was sitting there um, and he says what Allah said in the Quran, وَضَاقَتْ عَلَيْهُمُ الْأَرْضُ بِمَا رَحُبَتْ That even though the earth was so vast, it felt like it had narrowed down, constricted around them. Like the earth was closing in and around them. He says that, I heard somebody call out to me and he said, Ka'ab bin Malik Abshir. He says, hey Ka'ab, congratulations, congratulations. And he says, I immediately fell into sajda. And I realized that finally the relief had come from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And he said, people started coming by the house. People started running by the house, congratulating us. Yubashirunana. And he says that one man, he, ju- he was riding his horse. He was from the tribe of Banu Aslam, from my tribe. And he jumped off of his horse and he climbed up on kind of an elevation there. And he said, congratulations, congratulations. And he started congratulating me. And he says, I got so excited, so happy. I took off like the shawl that I was wearing, the shirt basically, the qamis that I was wearing. I took it off and I gave it to him as a gift. But he says, I was a simple man. I didn't own any more clothing. So I took off my shirt and gave it to him. And then I realized I didn't have another shirt. And I wanted to go see the Prophet Summer. I wasn't about to go shirtless. So then he says, I went over to my neighbor's house and I asked him, can I borrow a shirt? And he said, sure, here you go. Here's a shirt. Look how simple these people were. How sincere they were. You know, a lot of times we have a lot of criticism when people are very just kind of like caught in the moment and they're very spiritual and very emotional and very kind of like, you know, they, 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 they really give in to the, the moment. We kind of criticize that. As if everyone's got to be some analytical, mathematical machine and robot. But there's, there's, there's something really remarkable and beautiful about, you know, loving something so much, caring about something so much. Right? They're sincere people. They were all heart. You know, and so he says, I borrowed some clothes and then I finally went to the masjid. He says, when I entered the masjid, حتى دخلت المسجد فإذا برسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم جالس حوله الناس. He says, now, if you ever visit al Madinatul Munawwara, Al-Masjid al-Nabawi al-Sharif, if you ever visit the blessed city of Medina and the beautiful masjid of the Prophet the blessed masjid of the Prophet you see the portion that is, you know, the old masjid. Rawdatum min Riyadh al-Jannah, the old masjid of the Prophet the original masjid. And it's, you know, not a whole lot bigger than this. Maybe, maybe you know, one and a half or two size, times the size of this at the most. Maybe not even that much. Okay? So it's not very, very huge. It's not very, very big. And he says the Prophet ﷺ was sitting at the front and there were some companions sitting around him. And he says, I entered into the masjid. So imagine entering from the back door there. And he says that, so it was not that far. Like how, how long does it take to walk from that door to right there where that podium is? Just a couple of seconds. It's not very far. It doesn't take very long. And he says, even though I was there at that door and I was just going to be there with everybody in a couple of seconds, he says, one of the companions of the Prophet ﷺ, Talhat ibn Ubaidillah, one of the very remarkable companions, senior companions of the Prophet ﷺ, فَقَامَ إِلَيَّ طَلْحَةُ بْنُ عُبَيْدِ اللَّهِ يُهَرْوِلُ حَتَّى صَافَحَنِي وَهَنَّعَنِي He says, Talha got up and he ran to me at the door and he shook my hand and he congratulated me and he embraced me. He says, وَاللَّهِ مَا قَامَ إِلَيَّ رَجُلٌ مِنَ الْمُهَاجِرِينَ غَيْرُهُ وَلَا أَنْسَاهَا لِطَلْحَ he says, nobody else got up and met me like that because I was not very far away. But he says, I will never forget that moment. What Talha did for me. And another very powerful lesson here that sometimes it's the little, little things. We, underest- we underestimate the little things. And again, that goes back to kind of like that idea of just becoming too analytical and calculated and mathematic. Right? That just, that's a problem. But sometimes being empathetic and being sentimental, and caring about people. And not so much processing every single thing, like, oh, well, how logical is it? He's right there, I'll just let him get here, and then we'll meet him. Like, what difference does it make if he walks here or I walk there? But it, it might make a difference to him. 
it might make a difference to him. Because he's in this very powerful moment where he knows that God has forgiven him. And he gets to rejoin our community. And he wants to shake someone's hand and he wants to feel a hug and he wants to be, you know, embraced and held by the shoulder and said, you know, told that you're my brother and I love you and I missed you. Like that means something to him right now. You know, like, you know, somebody, somebody, you know, has a happy occasion or a happy moment and you're kind of like, oh, I'll see him in a couple of days and I'll just congratulate him then. Yeah, but me just going out of my way 30 minutes out of my way and going and seeing him at that moment or sending, calling him up or sending him a text saying, I'm really, really happy for you, super excited for you. MashaAllah, Mubarak, congratulations. May Allah bless you. May Allah put barakah and blessing in it. And I'm looking forward to seeing you in a couple of days. Like that's very small. Take 60 seconds. But it could mean the world to that person. And those are the, those are the small, small kindnesses, kindnesses that the Prophet ﷺ told us to never overlook and appreciate. That's why the Prophet ﷺ said, never underestimate a good deed, a good moment, a good opportunity. Right? And that's very, very important. That's what helps to build the bonds of community. That's what it takes to make a community. So the Prophet wasallam. Uh, so he says that Talha came and he embraced me and he greeted me. And it just meant the world to me. And finally he says, I went to the Prophet ﷺ and I said salam to him. And the Prophet ﷺ was smiling. And he says that when the Prophet ﷺ was happy, his face would radiate as if you were looking at the moon. It's like it was, it was like a piece of the moon. Like a small moon. Radiating. Beautiful. Happy. And the Prophet ﷺ, he said to me at that time, Abshir bi khayri yawmin marra alayka mundhu waladatka ummuka. He says, congratulations, this is the happiest day of your life ever since your mother gave birth to you. And he said that, I asked the Prophet ﷺ, Amin indika ya Rasulullah, Amin indillah. This is remarkable. The Sahaba were, Sahaba were like really insightful people. It's very reminiscent of Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha. When her bara'a was revealed within the Qur'an, when she was absolved of any, you know, all the accusations made against her, she's, you know, when her, when Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu and Umm Ruman, her mother and father basically said, thank the Prophet sallallahu and she said, I will thank him, I'm going to thank Allah first. Right? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one who absolved me from all these accusations. So again, he says, O Messenger of Allah, is that you relieving me or has God truly revealed, relieved me? And the Prophet said that, La bal min No, this is from Allah. And he says at that time, I said, Ya Rasulullah, inna min tawbati an min mali wa ila rasulihi. As a part of my penance, as part of my repentance, I would like to give away every single cent that I own, I'd like to give it all away in charity. And this is another very teachable moment where the Prophet ﷺ teaches us something very powerful. And he says, no, قلتو, um, the Prophet ﷺ said, la, bal amsik alayka ba'da malika fahuwa khayrun lak. Don't give everything away. That's not, that's not smart. You got to have something to live off of. You got a family to support. Because if you give everything away in charity in kind of like this moment, like see the two extremes. I talked about that one calculated mathematical extreme. Well, Allah's forgiven me. I give my sadaqah, you know, at this particular time or day and I'll stay on my schedule and, you know, it helps me balance my checkbook and, you know, it keeps things in order and it's how I file my taxes and I get my tax receipt and like stop, please. Right? This is like the worst conversation of all time. The spiritual accountant. Right? So that's one extreme. The opposite extreme is like, oh my God, this is the greatest moment of my life. Here's everything. And then you're kind of like, okay, um, whose house can I have dinner at tonight? Right? So it, it, it's two extremes. There's a balance in the middle. And that's what the Prophet said to give some away and keep some. I'm sick. Alika ba'da malika. Some. Right? Give, give a decent part of charity as thanks and gratitude to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but then keep some. So he said, okay, I will keep the wealth that I received during the expedition in the campaign, the battle of Khaybar. And then I said to the Prophet Kaab says, Ya Rasulullah, in Allah, innama najani bis-sidq. Very powerful. He says, O Messenger of Allah, Allah saved me through the truth. I spoke the truth and ultimately everything worked out. 
It was painful for a while. It was painful for a while. But ultimately worked out. Imam Ghazali, rahimahullah ta'ala, in, in Kima Sa'adat, in the book, he actually talks about this idea. Where he talks about that when, you know, sometimes we don't do the right thing in the moment. Because the right thing in the moment sometimes can be a little bit painful. But in, lo- in the long term, it's beneficial. Right? So when the doctor puts you under the knife, right? When the doctor cuts you open, right? It's painful. A little bit of pain there, a little bit of pain in the recovery. You're going to have a week or two of like a little bit of difficulty and pain and discomfort. But in the long run, you're going to be okay. But if you're so afraid of that week or two of discomfort that you don't take that, now you've got a lifetime of misery ahead of you. And that's the nafs. The nafs is like, no, don't stick me with the needle. Well, okay, then you can die. Then you can die. Right? And what did you achieve or accomplish? Right? That's the nafs. It's very short-sighted. But the soul, the ruh, is far-sighted, long-sighted. And it says, okay, bring on the needle. Bring it on. I'll take the needle now, but then I'll be okay. And that's what Kaab is talking about here. In the man jani Allah saved me by telling the truth. And part of my tawbah is that I will always tell the truth for the rest of my life. And he says, God is so merciful that I made that oath on that day that I will always tell the truth. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala never tested me in regards to a situation ever again. He never put me in a tough enough of a spot where I had to consider between lying and telling the truth. Telling the truth was always easy. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made the rest of my life very easy for me. And telling the truth was super easy for me. See, that's the barakah and the blessing if you make the commitment. He goes on to say um, that he... Quotes the ayat where لَقَتَابَ اللَّهُ عَلَى نَبِيِّ وَالْمُهَاجِرِينَ وَالْأَنصَارِ That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accepted the repentance and forgave them. And he goes on to say that this was the greatest blessing in my life. That entire experience that I went through was the greatest blessing of my life. It taught me so much. And it also protected me from meeting the fate of those people who went and lied to the face of the Prophet because he said every single person who lied in the face of the Prophet was destroyed. How were they destroyed? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said about them in the Quran, سَيَحْلِفُونَ بِاللَّهِ لَكُمْ إِذَنْ قَلَبْتُمْ إِلَيْهِمْ لِتُعْرِدُوا عَنْهُمْ فَأَعْرِدُوا عَنْهُمْ إِنَّهُمْ رِجْسٌ وَمَأْوَاهُمْ جَهَنَّمْ جَزَاءً بِمَا كَانُوا يَكْسِبُونَ that all the, these people will swear to you and take oaths and tell you that they're telling the truth so that you will not be upset and angry with them. Allah told the Prophet ﷺ, ignore them. They are filth. They are filthy, terrible, despicable people. They will end up in the fire of hell. And that is a, re, that is a reward for what they have done and what they have earned. In Allah Allah will never be pleased with them. And he says, versus us three, who went and confessed and told the truth to the Prophet Allah said, God forgave all three of us. The last thing here, and we'll conclude with this inshallah, is that I had said that there were not, it's called the Hadithu Kaab, but it wasn't just the story of Kaab. We learned about these three, but there were ten other people. The story about the ten other people is also narrated by Ibn Abbas, Ali bin Abi Talha, um, Ali bin Talha, and it's mentioned in many of the books of Sirah, like the book of Ibn Ishaq and others, Bayhaqi, where it talks about the fact that there were about ten people, that there were some other people who also came forth and they admitted, they confessed to the fact that they had made a mistake. They had a lot of good deeds, they made a mistake, but ultimately God forgave them because Allah is forgiving and merciful. There were about ten people and the leader, kind of the appointed leader amongst them was a sahabi by the name of Abu Lubaba. Abu Lubaba. And there were ten, nine more people with Abu Lubaba, ten total. And they kind of gathered together and they all talked amongst each other and said, what was your issues, what was your issues? And they all basically confessed to one another, we had no excuse, we messed up. We had no excuse, we messed up. So Abu Lubaba said, okay, I got this. So what happened was when the Prophet ﷺ came back, when they heard that he was coming back, Abu Lubaba said, tie yourselves to the, to the pillars of the masjid. 
tie yourselves to the pillars of that's why one of the pillars in Masjid Nabawi, the original Masjid Nabawi, is known as Ustuwanu Toba. Right? It's the, the pillar of Toba. So he said, tie yourself to the pillar. When the Prophet entered the masjid and he saw these people tie, tied to the pillars, the Prophet said, Man ha'ula, what's this going on here? Right? Like what's what's the deal? What's what's his business? And somebody told the Prophet that they have tied themselves to the pillar because they messed up, they stayed back when they shouldn't have. And they said that they will not re- release themselves, leave this place until you forgive them. The Prophet said, I can't release them. It's not my decision, it's God's decision to make. Allah will release them. So they stayed there tied up. And finally Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed in the Quran, the verse that I just mentioned. And the Prophet told them that Allah has forgiven you. And so that's when they untied themselves from the pillar and they came and they basically also gave a lot of their wealth into sadaqah. They said, we want to donate a lot of our wealth in charity as penance for our mistake. The Prophet said, مَا أُمِرْتُ أَنَّ أَخُذَ أَمْوَالَكُمْ I have not been told to take your money. Like look at the ethics of the Prophet Right? Try to go to a masjid or an Islamic organization and say that I want to give my money. They'll be like, yes, absolutely. Right? There's no question about it. The Prophet is like, no, 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 no. I don't have a command from Allah to take your money. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed the verse, خُذْ مِنْ أَمْوَالِهِمْ صَدَقَةً تُطَهِّرُهُمْ وَتُزَكِّهِمْ بِهَا وَصَلِّ عَلَيْهِمْ إِنَّ صَلَاتَكَ سَكْنُ لَهُمْ اللَّهُ سَمِينُ عَلَيْهِمْ That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, accept the charity that they're offering. It will purify them and make dua for them. When you make dua for them, they'll feel better. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, وَآخَرُونَ مُرْجَوْنَ لِأَمْرِ اللَّهِ إِمَّا يُعَذِّبُهُمْ إِمَّا يَتُبُوا عَلَيْهِمْ That there are people who hope for the mercy of God, and they're willing to accept whatever the decision from Allah is, whether they're punished or they're forgiven. But Allah has of course forgiven them. And so that's when they basically untied themselves, they gave that charity, and they were also forgiven um, for having stayed back. Um, and finally, Ibn Kathir rahimahullah ta'ala, he actually says that, كَانَ الْمُتَخَلِّفُونَ عَنْ غَزْوَةِ تَبُوكَ أَرْبَعَةَ أَقْسَامِ There were four types of people who stayed back from Tabuk. There were four types of people who stayed back from Tabuk. Number one, مَأْمُرُونَ مَأْجُرُونَ There were those who were told by the Prophet ﷺ to stay back from Tabuk, but they get the full reward, because they were following orders, like Ali radiallahu ta'ala And we talked about that. The second group was ma'dhuruna wa humu du'afa wal marda wal muqilluna wa humu al-bukka'un. There were some who were too weak to go, did not have enough finances to go, and the Prophet said, and they still came and they said, we want to go. The Prophet said, I know you want to come, but I can't take you. We can't afford to bring you along. And the Quran talks about them that they cried. Right? They cried and they said, Oh Allah, we wish we could go. And Allah will reward them. Then Then there were those who stayed back and they were blameworthy. But they confessed. They fessed up. And they paid their penance and they were ultimately forgiven by Allah. Like the story of the people we talked about. Then there was a fourth group. Then there were those who stayed back and they were wrong and they weren't even repentant. They weren't even repentant. And those were the hypocrites. So the big takeaway and the big lesson is look. There were those who went. Sometimes we, we know what we have to do and we're able to do it and we're capable of doing it. We say Alhamdulillah. And we thank Allah for the opportunity of doing it. Sometimes there's something that we're, that we're supposed to do, but we're needed somewhere else. We're needed by the mandate of the religion, we're needed elsewhere. We have to be willing to sacrifice our ego and our sense of self and do what needs to be done. Ali radiallahu ta'ala came crying out of Medina, please don't leave me behind, please don't leave me, why do you leave me behind? And the Prophet said, I need you there. Now be a soldier, be a good soldier and go do your job. So sometimes you're needed elsewhere and you got to sacrifice what you think you should be doing and do what, you, what is needed, what is required, what is asked of you. Then sometimes there are moments where there's a call to action, but you're not capable of doing it. The lesson from here, from that group of people, is you should still, with every 
ounce, every fiber, every cell of your being, you should want to do it. But you know you're not capable of it, but that doesn't mean that you still, from your heart, don't wish and want to be able to. That's called sincerity. نَصَحُوا لِلَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ إِذَا نَصَحُوا لِلَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ Allah says that in Surah Tawbah, as long as they are sincere to God and His Messenger. Then the third, the, the next, the fourth predicament, the fourth situation is, there was a call to action, you were asked to do something, you were capable of doing it, but you did not do it. You were negligent. The thing to do in that situation is to own it, and to fess up. Say, I know I should have done it, but I didn't. And I'm to blame. That truthfulness will set you free. The truth shall set you free. As-sidqu yunji. The truth shall set you free. Right? وَالْكَذِبُ يُهْلِكُ Lying, deluding yourself, deceiving yourself, or trying to deceive someone else only will lead to doom and destruction. And then the fifth predicament, may Allah protect us all, is when you're asked to be somewhere, to do something, and you can, but you don't. And then you decide to delude yourself. Recognize you don't delude God. You don't harm the community. You don't cause any detriment to the world around you. You destroy yourself. May Allah protect us all. So inshallah we'll go ahead and conclude here. I'm sorry about going over time. And um, inshallah we'll continue on in the next session. Subhanallah bihamdihi. Subhanakallah bihamdik. Nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta. Nasakfiraku wa natubu ilayk.